everybody welcome back to the punk till i die podcast i am of course tom neil say hello hello everybody seems like we were just talking to you just yesterday strange how that works isn't it yes yes <laughs> so of course you can find us at punk till i die podcast on facebook punk till i die podcast group on facebook punk till i die 77 at gmail exactly anyway that's enough that's enough intro for today yes we have a, we have have a very special again. very special episode today right tom yes and good special, not like where's the helmet to school special. Good, good special. Um, so we we actually have an author with us, and even if the name does not ring a bell, I I know a lot of you have read him because I know especially the Keith Morris uh, biography. I know a lot of us were talking about. We had a good conversation about it, but we have with us today Jim Ruland, who wrote the Keith Morris. He wrote the Bad Religion biography. He's written some fiction stuff. I think I was kind of looking at his stuff but anyway we have a legitimate author with us daniel yeah very so how you doing jim yeah happy to have you hey, doing great thanks for having me on the show no worries man you thank bet, you man. thank you for coming we really appreciate it yeah but i assume you were a punk rocker long before you ever considered writing a book jim how'd you get into the the music uh well i always was drawn to weird music um i just didn't really consider myself punk or any kind of label i just knew what i was listening to uh, uh, a bit out of step with the things that everyone else was listening to uh, i guess uh, i graduated in high school in 86 and so when i was in like you know junior high and all that it would have been right before the dawn of mtv when everyone told us what we were supposed to be listening to <laughs> like 82 and, or something yeah right and um 
and uh, my brother had a record player, and we would uh, that we shared, and we played records. And uh, we, I think, I started with the second Ramones album. Yeah, that's a good and one. Just absolutely hooked, and um, my we we were so obsessed with the Ramones that we talked our mom into taking us to see them play uh, at the Wax Museum in Washington D.C. Wow, which she did. That's- so that was my uh, punk rock baptism, going to see uh, the Ramones when I was about fifteen years old. So that's impressive. So you were so even though you're in San Diego now and you have been for a while, you were from the East Coast originally. That's right. That's right. I was in the Navy family, um, and then just bopped around the country quite a bit. And um, but we basically settled in Northern Virginia in the suburbs of DC. Hmm. And so that was yeah, that was your punk rock beginnings uh, with the Ramones and stuff like that. That's that that that's awesome. Um, he's so, right, and you notice he's right between us age wise, Neil. Like literally right in the middle of us. Like I I graduated ninety one, you graduated eighty one, right? I graduated high school in eighty one. Yes, I am very old. Yes, indeed. Yes. <laughs> even though and I'm, I'm even though I moved to the I moved to the states right when MTV was starting, so I can kind of uh, appreciate appreciate that. I, yeah, that was a good time to come. Actually, I came in eighty three. So uh, I got to see all the good bands too. So that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. So um, so how did so, so how did the whole writing thing start for you? Well, uh, it's funny. I was a pretty terrible student. I mean, I went to a Catholic um, private school for twelve years, both grade school and high school, and I started out a pretty good student, and um, you know, was reasonably bright. But um, once I hit adolescence, I just became less and less interested in school and involved and i just couldn't make myself you know do the work so um i ended up joining the navy uh when i graduated which uh, my parents probably weren't too thrilled about after selling out all that money for private school so so you you grew you grew up a navy kid that's interesting so you you said you grew up a navy kid traveling around and then you decided to follow that same route huh Interesting. Yeah, well, it was yeah, it was not the most um, thought best thought out mood because I was you know I was you know seventeen eighteen couldn't wait to get out of the high school at the peak of your ado- adolescent fuck you phase. <laughs> and what did my dumbass do but join the navy where I was going to have to follow even more rules and more. <laughs> but uh, it ended up being uh, really good for me for a couple of reasons. One. Um, I got stationed in San Diego, where I live today. So it got me out of the East Coast, sent me to California, and opened uh, up my eyes to other parts of the world. I mean, I, I literally went all over the world on a Westpac, and but more importantly, I met a bunch of other sailors from all over, all over the country and from California who were into punk and hardcore and metal and oi. And that's when I really started to get an education in uh, in alternative music. That's pretty cool. So I think I was reading. Okay, so the one thing Tom didn't mention, uh, yeah, there's the Keith Morris book, the Bad Religion book, but you've also your, your latest one anyway that's out right now was the uh, was it Corporate Rock Sucks, the Rise and Fall of SST, right? That's the uh, that's yep. your latest book that you have out, and I actually just I actually just finished that today. So, um, yeah, I must say it's, it's an excellent, it's an excellent read. Thank Uh, you. Yeah, of course. Um, it's so interesting too, because, well, anyway, we can, we can get to that later on. Yeah, I was going to say, let's, let's not jump that far ahead. Do you want to stick a, 
stick a song. Is there a song of the bunch that you were thinking of that represents this era of your life? The sort of being on the ship or whatever. I don't know if you're on a ship or whatever you were, or if you were stationed on land or whatever. But is there a song of the ones you picked that represents that part of your life that we should play next? Yeah, let, let's go. Uh, the stains, sick and crazy, because it's a little punk, it's a little metal, and I got in a lot of trouble in the navy. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is this the stains no is this the mdc stains or is this the la stains the la stains the east side stains. yep okay who, re- who recorded the uh album the one album for sst that again we will talk about later probably ah gotcha gotcha yeah so uh okay so this is the stains with sick and crazy <laughs> the stains there with with sick and crazy from their one self-titled fantastic album um and that was what eight that was probably like 82 right right as right as you were joining the navy or something that that does that timeline you know, even work? Right? yeah but much, much earlier than that and in fact i think it came out in 83 but it was recorded in 81 or 82 um they, it, it, they had to wait quite a bit of time for for the record to come out and that was part of the problem is that um, it took so long for the record to come out that the band had broken up. So that's why a lot more people don't know about the stains. Um, and if mm. there's one thing that my book Corporate Rock Sucks does, I hope it, it shines a light on an amazing band. Mm. And, and it is crazy, Tom, because I can remember because, like I said, I, I was I came to the states in '83, 
and um, back down in Champaign-Urbana back then, there was so many record stores, and I can remember picking up that Stains album, but there were so many hardcore records I wanted to buy, and so little money, you know what I mean? So you had to buy the ones sure. that you knew the most, so I probably bought like a, you know The Crew by 7 Seconds or something instead of that, but I can remember sure. picking it up and holding it in my hands, and now, <laughs> on eBay, uh, not eBay, on Discogs, that thing's like $250, $300 if you can find it. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you won't. It'll be a lot more than that, I think. Hmm. That's probably beat up, beat up old copy, Neil. Yeah. So, so you, so did you do four years in the Navy then? I did six. So it was two years active and four years inactive, you know, on the reserve side. So, um, technically, I was in the reserves because it was like a, it was a weird college program that, I, excuse me, that I was in. So uh, right after the Navy, I went back to Virginia and went to school. Hmm. Okay. And is that when you was that when you started writing, kind of thing, or what was the deal with that? Yeah, um, you know, like I I got into my classes. I was like really kind of shell shocked because you know I literally went. I walked off the off the deck with my sea bag over my shoulder and like less than 48 hours later i'm in a, sitting in a classroom going holy shit you know what is what just happened <laughs> and um well one of the first classes i took was like my compass intro to english composition and i had a really cool teacher named uh, dr timothy poland and uh, i think he was a fairly new teacher at that point too and he assigned us all these, or uh, he gave us all these writing assignments, and I just jumped into it. I started writing about, you know, partying it up in the Philippines or helicopter operations in the South China Sea, or just all the all the crazy stuff that I'd witnessed or seen, or um, you know that I've been up to for the last two years. And so he was like, you know, um, you should keep doing this. And I was like, really. <laughs> And uh, I think after being a total, you know, fuck up for several years, I was just uh, waiting for someone to come along and tell me I was good at something, anything, um, and I would have jumped at it. <laughs> so, so what? So what are we talking? Like eighty six by now, or what? No, I'd be like nine. I'd be eighty eight or something, right? Yeah, I, I enrolled in school in eighty eight, okay. and uh, waited ninety two. Okay, and on your biography, it says that you wrote for a, did write, was it Flipside Maximum Rock and Roll you were writing for? Like, how did that come about? I wrote for Flipside, not uh, Maximum Rock and Roll. So, um, so like, I was, uh, after college, I was in L.A., and, um, um, you know, I had, I met a bunch of different people who were involved in, I just worked at a coffee shop so in North Hollywood and it was kind of like the blue collar version of the Hollywood dream where like over the hill in Hollywood they're all like you know um, wanting to be actors and, and doing hardcore drugs and we were all just you know drinking lots of coffee and you know writing working in bands you know doing I mean the whole city, everybody it seems like was involved in some kind of creative pursuit mm-hmm. uh, and uh so one of my friends, I, I met somebody who started working for um, Flipside, and he started sending me CDs to review, and so I started doing that. And um, and as as his influence at Flipside grew, 
I started having more opportunities to do more and more things. Um, being in LA was really exciting to, um, you know, all the bands were there, right? So right. Um, it was it was great to have all this immediate access to the music I loved. And that's where I got a lot of experience of sitting in vans, interviewing people and um, transcribing those interviews and making it into some kind of compelling story. Uh, that's really where I cut my teeth on the kind of work that I ended up doing in my books. I just didn't know it at the time. I was just literally happy to be there. Now, were you in bands yourself? You're a musician at all or not? No. No. No, no, no. Okay. I mean, I, I grew up in a very uh, intensely Irish-American family, so there's some Irish music and Irish dance in my in my background, but let's let's not go to those dark chapters. <laughs> <laughs> he still can't move his arms and his feet at the same time. He doesn't need to, 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 let's just say it was, it was all before river dance, so it just wasn't cool, right? <laughs> So so at this point, okay. So at this point, you're you're. Uh, it, did you at some point have to get a real job, or was like writing professionally? Your, I mean, I'm not saying that working at a coffee shop isn't a real job, but was your? Did you start writing books right away, or did was it quite a few more year process before you were able to do a book at that point? Oh no, quite quite a quite a few years. I did have real jobs. Um, I worked at a, um, an ad agency. And, um, but I think, you know, I was, I was a, working full time, but I was also partying a lot and wow. I, I, that was my, my main interest. And even though I was doing stuff for Flipside and then for Razor Cake when that started up in 2000 and I was doing book reviews and involved, <clears throat> you know, other literary things. I mean, my main focus, I think, looking back, was was drinking and partying and having a good time. Hmm. And until um, about thirteen years ago, which is when I I, I quit and got sober. And um, it's really not that big of a coincidence that I have like so many so much work has come out since then, and hmm. not during all the time when I was uh, focused on other things. Gotcha. So what was the what was the first thing you had published? Short story Man. or something, or what was? I mean, other than okay, not, not I shouldn't say not you know, not that Flipside isn't published, but I would say let's call it more serious literary pursuit. What's the first time you had something like that published? I, I don't know. I mean, I I think that you know the the Flipside stuff was was a pretty big deal. I mean, mm. when it was all a big deal, and um, yeah. I, mean, I think that I mean. I love flip. I love Flipside. That was my Flipside, Maximum, Maximum Rock and Roll were kind of like hand in hand to me. But Flipside was always glossy and nice. Yeah, it didn't and make Maximum your fingers Rock and Roll dirty. was a newspaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, and um, well, I mean, there was. A, I think there was a little bit of a rivalry between you know the LA zine and the San Francisco zine. All I know is I came in late, and my writing was not particularly good because I was still fairly new at it. Mm. Um, but. Um, there were a lot less rules at Flipside, so uh, it suited. Gotcha. It's, it's definitely suited my style. Um, but I mean, you know, it's funny. There was some. I remember a conversation. That I haven't thought about this in years, but there was a guy that I was working with at the uh, ad agency, and he was a writer. And there's a lot at every agency. You find a lot of writers who are like have a novel in the drawer or want to sell a pilot or a screenplay mm -hmm. or something. And uh, I think I was a bit of an anomaly in L.A. and that I was more interested in 
novels and short stories than screenplays and scripts. Mm-hmm. But um, but this guy did it all, and he was really you know trying to break into this or that. And I remember he said something. It's like, well, this stuff, flip side's cool, but don't you think it kind of takes the edge off? You know, seeing your name in print every other month. <laughs> and uh, and my response, I thought about it, and I was like, well, no, maybe. Oh, fuck you. I mean, <laughs> is where I, I mean, ended up. I wouldn't. Yeah, I would say I wouldn't think so. People name familiarity is not is a valuable thing, right? I I think he's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think he just didn't understand the thing. And I, I mean, I was writing about the thing I was most passionate about. So, um, hmm. and like I recently, you know, you kind of forget about. You know, I mean, when you're writing, you're always focused on the deadline, and then the the thing that you're doing is is crushingly important because you have all these people on top of you, and then the thing that's next is kind of like this dream, and then you kind of forget about all the stuff that you did, and. I found this old issue of Flipside that I had I had written this column in it, and I interviewed H2O, the hardcore band, and I had also interviewed um, Gary Newman with somebody else. <laughs> and there were all these really cool interviews with, like, Bad Religion and The Veil, and I'm like, man, we were doing some really cool shit, you know? And mm. I was a very small part of, of that. I mean, those issues in the 90s were massive. You know? Yeah. Now, w- when you were doing well, those interviews, were you doing those face to face, or were you doing them over the phone normally? All of them were face to face. Oh, cool. How mm. was Ga- how was Gary Newman? I've heard he's kind of a weird dude. Gary Newman was super cool. Yeah. Um, the guy who wrote that—it's funny because the guy who did that interview was another guy I worked with at the ad agency who was a huge Gary Newman fan, and I just kind of went along just to, since it was going to be in Flipside, just to make sure it was flip side standards and, and it was fine he did he did all the work i was just kind of like wow this is cool and um um gary newman was 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 super real and he said something i'll never forget he said that um you know about that whole like getting up and putting on makeup and things like that he he said that a, you know it doesn't matter how you dress up or if you dress up or what you do with the makeup or lighting a performer should always look like they belong in the song. Hmm. And I was like, wow, that's, that's really cool. And then also, um, uh, uh, there, the opener that night was Marilyn Manson. And I, um, wow. Got, I got to see him perform during sound check, uh, without his makeup. So that was kind of a trip. Hmm. <laughs> well, what a weird bill. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I guess. Yeah. Uh, mm. Interested in that. Um, so should we should we fast forward a little bit to the? Now, was the Keith Morris book was that the first book that you that you had published, or was there something else in between? And how did you uh, make that? How did you make that transition? How did you How did you know it was time, or how did you get in, go from one spot to the other? Well, uh, I got an agent. So um, you know, I had had an agent um, in L.A. and. I was working on this novel. I think I worked on this novel for seven years. And at the end of it, I think the agent figured out that I was more interested in being a drunk than I was in being a novelist. Mm. And, and he invited me to explore um, other opportunities. And, it, and I, my friends had to explain to me, it's like, you, he dropped you, Jim. That's what that, you, you just got fired. That's what that means. Like, <laughs> they just do it very nicely, huh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
it was very nice. And we had like lunch at Musso and Frank's and I felt like a big deal and he picked up the tab and then he like was like, you know, I invite you to explore opportunities elsewhere. So, um, hmm. that was kind of crushing. And then, um, as it turns out, um, my uh, my my big awakening was uh, not too far around the corner from getting sober, and then after I did, I got another agent, and we were trying to sell uh, a novel, which we ended up doing um, uh, a few years later. But he started uh, bringing projects to me, and the first of those was a book I wrote with uh, a guy who was the captain on uh, the show Deadliest Catch. Oh yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yep. Yeah, so I wrote a book with him. I went up to Dutch Harbor, and um, that was cool. Um, I think I was a good fit for that because I knew what Port and Starboard was and yeah. could relate. Yeah, there you go. You that experience uh, came in handy. Yeah, yeah I knew all the topical nomenclature, so that was a good fit. It was a lot of fun, and then it kind of proved to the industry that I, I could do it. Right. Hmm. So Neil, let's stick another song in here because I think we're starting to get to some. Uh, the some of the meat of the subject so let's uh okay let's see what how many songs we got five probably yeah five but we can add it we can add another one yeah we can do whatever we want yeah so i think you had uh transition next now tell us a bit about transition because that's not a band that i'm familiar with transition is one of the one of those uh um sst bands that few people know about because um there it was in the 90s when sst was on the decline but they, they picked Transition out of the slush, and the band, they're from San Francisco, actually toured with uh, with Greg Ginn. So hmm. uh, the, the record, I think, is a gem. It, it, it's, to my ears, it sounds like a cross between Helmet and Jane's Addiction, and uh, um, which in this kind of post-turnstile world seems like uh, there's maybe some, you know, a good fit. Hmm, okay, cool. So let's give that a listen. This is Transition with uh, the song is called Riding My Spine. Thank you. 
transition there was riding my spine. Yeah, I'm not familiar with them either. Yeah. Well, there's an awful lot of bands like that on SST at the end. At the end of the book, he lists, like, every SST um, release. And what is it, like, 350, 400, something like that? Yeah, it's it's about 350. It gets almost up to 400, but um, there are some gaps yeah. in... Uh, in the numbers yeah. oh, oh okay oh i didn't see that okay yeah well it's it's fascinating neil and i wanted to have an in-depth conversation about the catalog but we'll see we'll see if we get to we'll see how in-depth we get on it but so so you did the book of the, the deadliest catch guy so that got you kind of in the ghostwriting biography not not even ghostwriting you know co-writing autobiographies at that point did you say man i'd like to do some punk rock stuff or did that get brought to you or how how did the and what was your first punk? Was that the Bad Religion one? No, it was uh, Keith Morris, My Damage. Okay, that's the, so that's and, the uh, one. That's the book of yours that I've read, actually. Even though I'm sure I will read the SST and the Bad Religion ones now. But uh, so, how'd you how'd you transition to that? Okay, so one of the things that I've been doing, um, you know, both before I got sober and after, was I had this reading series called Vermin on the Mount, and. It was nice. a kind of literary series, but it was also kind of punk rock in the sense that um, when I started it, most of the reading series in L.A. were all based around poetry, right? And sure. I wanted to get a venue where people could read novels or journalists or, you know, musicians and things like that. You know, anyone who had something to say. And I had a strong bias towards nonfiction, people who were like talking about how they got their car ripped off or how they... You know, got in a fight. Not stand up, but people who are good storytellers. Things kind of like, like that, the moth, like the moth, like the moth kind of idea. Yeah, uh, but like less performance based. It's more um, and, and more unexpected too. That that's okay. The moth is pretty, moth is pretty pro. You know. Um, yeah, they're polished. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a pretty pro deal. Um, like you wouldn't be able to put vermin on the mount on the radio or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. So, Especially in the beginning, but one of the first events I did was this thing at this art gallery um, with um, a couple of writers, with you know Todd Taylor from Flipside and Keith Morris and Brendan Mullen um, from The Mask and um, you know from a Booker Club lingerie and also an author of all these different books. Hmm. And, and so I was kind of in the mix with some of these people and, um, you know, it's just, you know, so my agent thought of me like as someone who like had like, you know, a feet in different worlds and punk rock and music and lit literature and things like that. So he was always trying to find stuff for me that would, would, I'd be a good fit for. And that's how the Keith Morris project came came along. Keith was going to write a book with Brendan Mullen. Hmm. Brendan, Brendan has done some amazing books. He collaborated on uh, "We Got the Neutron Bomb" and uh, the story of like the LA punk scene in the seventies. Hmm. And he'd also collaborated on a book, um, "Lexicon Devil," about Darby Crash. Yep. He did a he did a real amazing photo book about the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He's just like a really fascinating guy. Hmm. And so he's going to do a book with Keith. And then uh, he passed away very suddenly. Oh, okay. He thought, well, that's the end of my book. Um, but then uh, the publisher and my uh, of the book and my agent kind of um, approached us about 
working together on a book, and we went for it. So, so Keith Keith Morris, you know, you hear you hear him talk a lot, and he's he's definitely got that real hard California. Like he talks like a Californian more than anybody I've met or I've seen. But he's clearly a bright guy. But how's the process? Well, how's well, the, I mean, he's Californian, but he's <laughs> that was a no, nice no, dig. No, I just, nice dig, Tom. He's got a way of speaking that's he's got that laid back California. Well, no, I just he's not a he's not a dumb guy. He just talks kind of slow and kind of weird like a, a, a anyway, that's not my point. He's he's awesome. I've 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 come brushed across him a couple times. Don't know him at all. But what I, what I'm getting to is so what's the process? You sit down together or what what my what I'm saying is is Keith Morris writing anything or is he dictating to you or how's the how's the process work with this book? Um, every book is different, but with Keith, like Keith is one of the great storytellers of punk rock. Yeah, absolutely. And as you as you noted, he has a very distinctive voice, and that comes from uh, Hermosa Beach, where he grew up and where he was raised. He wasn't born he wasn't born um, born there. He's a California native, but uh, but he grew up at the beach, and so it's this odd mix of like surfer slang. Um, bohemian and uh, you know laid-back Southern California drawl. Um, you remember, like with with guys like Keith and other people that were part of the first wave of American punk. I mean, there there was no punk rock for them to grow up listening to. They all listened to stuff, you know, like you know the acid rock, the glam rock, and stuff sure. of the seventies. You know, so. Um, so that was that's Keith's whole vibe. It's kind of like this hippie stoner beach thing all coming together in this very unique and very distinctive style. And that uh, I thought nobody talked like Keith until I started interviewing other people from that era around. Or <laughs> little things that I that I that I picked up on, you know, like like Spot talks a little bit like him. Um, you know, Mark Holzman from uh, Slovenly talks a little bit like you know. There, there's just a Hermosa Beach thing, man. Hmm. So how do you how do you do you guys spend a lot of time together? I mean, obviously you're trying to find his voice. You want the book to be in his voice. Do you guys spend a lot of time together? So how do you how does this thing get put together? Face to face, many many hours in his apartment, telling, telling you stories, stories, and you're taping me, them and. Yeah, me recording you. them and then listening to them. I, I mean, I think a lot of like, like a journalist would just have them transcribed, but I would do that myself and listen to the tapes over and over again. And so that's how I got a sense of how Keith talks, what he would say, what more importantly, what he wouldn't say. And uh, so that I could take these stories and make them cohesive because Keith doesn't need any help telling stories. But he needs help, like with all the dates and filling in the gaps, and yep. uh, he kind of a creating circular a creating a bigger approach. narrative. Yeah, yeah. Like, Do you guys you know, put your heads together on that, or is this like, or is he just trust you to, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk and talk and talk, and you make it into something? No, no. Keith was extremely involved, and uh, and then when we like when I had the man, he read the finished manuscript um, at least three times. <laughs> I mean. He was extremely involved, and he was making notes, and he was catching things that proofreaders had missed. I mean, he was thoroughly involved in telling the stories and also going over the written document. So um, huh. that's not the way everybody works, but but it's how Keith worked. So, 
so like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Neil. Go ahead. You, no, you, I, I don't really... no, I was going to say. Uh, I, did you I, read? Did you read my damage? I know you I read did. the new one. You I read, did. Yeah, you I, read the Keith Morris. Like, yeah, yeah, I read my damage, and at the, pretty much at the same time, I also read um, one of the X. Or X did two books. I think John, John, yeah, John yeah, I think John Doe, Doe did two books, right? So I was reading those yeah. basically at the same time. And it was actually a really interesting juxtaposition because even though they were both stories of the same place at the same time, it was interesting listening to the two voices yeah. talking about same things but different things. So well, the that John was kind Doe of book was different because there was 10, 12 narrators. Yeah. I, I actually loved that book too. It made me feel like I was there more than mm-hmm. I think any other book I've ever read about that scene. But um, but yeah, there's a second part of that too. My daughter bought it for my birthday. I haven't read it yet. I have a pile of punk rock books just stacked up. But uh, but I I, the, I I was gonna I was just gonna ask Jim great. though. Jim, did, did you happen to watch? Did you watch the new Pistol documentary on Hulu? I, I'm about way through it. Okay, yeah, so uh, the reason I bring that up is because I really think Steve Jones could have done with someone like you when he was writing his biography. Because yeah, there are so many things that are like he obviously forgot a lot of dates and a well, lot of no, things. No, the biography is fine, Neil. The bio- the Lonely Boy biography because I read that too. The Lonely Bi- Boy biography is fine. It's just they took a lot of liberty with the with nah, the making it. No, nah, if, if 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 you listen to his podcast when he had Glenn Matlock on, there were so many things that Steve had forgotten or just didn't uh, know. He just didn't know the dates and well, stuff. Well, Steve spent and, a lot of years trying to kill brain cells too he and the, the fact of the matter is keith did too and he's very honest about that but keith has been clean for like 40 40 years or something i mean he's been he's been clean a yeah. long long time yeah, that was the thing that most amazed me about the keith morris book was it was he almost died like twice right yeah once oh, was yeah. later yeah once he was like in his 50s i think yeah yeah in europe yeah that was a yeah. that was a real weird weird story too yeah and it's it's amazing too because you know the fact of the matter is that book almost needs an addendum now with the circle jerk resurgence right i mean yeah. it's guy just keeps keeps reinventing himself or keeps i don't know keeps he's like oh yeah like it uh it kind of begin it it ends where off begins and now off is going into a second chapter and circle jerks have reunited and so um we were we were trying to put something together for a sequel and then covid happened which kind of scuttled things so um so it could happen we were thinking about using the reunion as kind of like a lens, but um, but you know, um, Keith has told me more stories, and we're you know, I, there's I, I don't want to promise something that might not happen, but um, there there is there there has been discussion of a sequel. Hmm. Very cool. So so by comparison, the Bad Religion book has to be much more of a pain than that because you're talking about probably eight ten members over the I'm trying to think there's five guys in the band they've definitely gone through a few guitar players a couple of drummers i mean you're talking probably at least 10 people that have been in the band that's obviously yep. a much more laborious process i assume it really was um but the, i mean they're all challenging right you know sure. um, they all have they all have their unique challenges and you know, I think as long as you go into it not thinking it's going to be easy, then you're okay. Just, it takes a lot of work. Um, but I definitely ended up with about twice as much tape to transcribe hmm. as um, as I did with uh, Keith, and way more than I could ever possibly use. Uh, I think I ended up with like a quarter of a million words. Um, Jeez. Wow. So... Um, Wow, that sounds like the, that's for the Dead Kennedys book, straight from Jello Biafra himself, right? A quarter million, <laughs> quarter million words. So, so um, how did that how did that book come about? Same kind of way? 
Because it's funny, because Greg Graffin has written at least a couple of books, right? I mean, he's very capable. If he wanted to do his own biography, he's one of the guys in punk rock that could certainly do his own autobiography. How did the uh, Bad Religion thing come about? Same kind of same kind of way? Well, to jump ahead a little bit, um, Greg has a new book coming out called The Punk Paradox, so you might want to check that out. I, my buddy uh, Scott is a huge fan of his book, but it's nonfiction. It's really technical writing, the stuff he does, right? No, no, no! It's coming out. He's got a new one coming out. Oh yeah, yeah. But I'm saying the stuff he's done in the past. It's kind of. I think it's nonfiction. I think it's fairly technical about overpopulation I mean, it, it, or something. It, it, I mean, he's he's a doctor. Obviously, he's a very bright guy. It is and it isn't. He still tells some pretty amazing stories. So uh, hmm. interesting. Yeah, I'd definitely be uh, up for checking that out. I think the punk paradox might be more what what uh, people who aren't interested in science would be looking for. But I haven't read it, so I don't know. Gotcha. Gotcha. But, uh, but uh, I, I can't wait to, so uh, we'll see. Um, but, well, yeah, bad relig- what was the question? Bad religion? How, how did the bad religion thing come about? Same kind of way? Oh, or was it, just, it was really good timing. Um, the uh, My Damage paperback come out, and, uh, you know, the band was looking for someone to, to collaborate with, and they put the tour manager in charge, and... Um, the tour manager went around, you know, asking people, and I guess enough people gave him my name because because uh, my damage paperback was out and people were talking about it. So, so how long? Okay, so how long did the Keith Morris book take? And then how long? I mean, how long did you have to devote? You had to devote a couple of years to the Bad Religion book, right? I mean, it's it's insane amount of time you're spending on these. I assume. Yeah, it's a, it's a couple of years for each of these books. So, you know, they're not really. Um, yeah, it, it, it's not something you can knock out one summer or even one year. It, it takes a while. You know? Well, especially you have to fact check everything, and it's you know obviously more difficult than a, a fictional work would be. But um, is this is this all you're doing at this point? Are you are you working a straight job, or is this your job writing these books when you're writing those books? So um, I um, see. I had worked for a couple of different jobs. I was working at a casino. Um, I went back to the ad agency, and then um, when I had a novel come out, I was like, um, I need to, I got to quit because I'm going to go on book tour. And they're like, you can't quit. You can work from home. And I was Mm. like, well, I wish you told me that several years ago, you know, because I was commuting from uh, San Diego to work there. I'd, I'd work in L.A. all week and then come back on the weekends. And that got old after a couple of years. And, uh, so, um, I thought I was going to walk away from the job and then find something else to do. So I was able to work from home and keep that job for a couple more years. And, uh, and then, um, it was during, I was researching the bad religion book. Um, we had actually, we had just saw, we had just sold the bad religion book and I was going to go follow them around on tour in Europe for a couple of weeks. Hmm. And I, I had put in a vacation request, and they were like, "Actually, um, we're going to let you go now." <laughs> and uh, so um, I was like, "Okay, well, I was going to go. I was going to leave a couple of years ago anyway." And then <laughs> some, somewhere in 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 Europe, it just kind of dawned on me. I woke up one day. I was like, "Wow, this is my job now," you know. And hmm. uh, that was 2018, and I've been doing this ever since. So uh, just just hopping on that again, um, 
so how does that work? Okay, so you sign to a to a big publisher to do these books. Do you get like is it like a record deal where you get an advance and then you you live on that for the two years while you're writing the book or how how does like what do you live on while you while you're working for two years? Yeah, well, that's pretty much how it goes. Like um, when you when you're co-writing with a band, it's their book deal and you're the hired gun, right? Okay, gotcha. Um, kind of like a band, you know, will sometimes, you know, hire a musician and they get like a, a, you know, a great fee, you know. Yeah. When you're like the hired gun, it, it can, for a book, it could be, the terms can be all, it can mean all kinds of different things, right? Um, but usually you get like a percentage of, of what the, of what the band gets. So yeah, you get a percentage of the advance, you get a percentage when you turn the book in and another percentage when it, when it comes out. So, um, so like between the agents fees and taxes, it never feels like, uh, you know, these big chunks of money. Right. Um, but you know, if, if you're, if you watch your pennies and I started out with some savings, um, and, and my spouse works. So, um, you know, it, we were able to make it work. That's a pretty dream job though, man. That's, that's awesome that you've made this work for yourself to do what you love, oh, yeah. you know? I don't know well, how if, long it lasts, but uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, if it forces you, I don't know, even even as we get older, it forces you to like still kind of keep a foot in the punk rock world, which is pretty cool actually. Because let's face it, it gets pretty difficult after about thirty <laughs> to kind of keep a foot in that world, you know. Well, um, um, do, you guys, do you guys have kids? Yes. Like, yes. Yeah, we both do. Yeah. We both do. Yeah. Adult yeah. kids, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Yeah, I have uh, I have one daughter and she's in college now so um so there's that whole thing when you're when your kids are young and you know you're the one who's you know helping out with all the you know basic biological needs you know punk rock kind of has to take a back seat right yeah definitely um, unless it's like your job or something i mean it's it's pretty hard to um you know um to do that stuff and then be like and then rally and go out at night but um but then What's- you know but then at the end of that, you know, like, you know, sometimes you end up with a, a teenager who's into the same music and you can share it. And it's pretty amazing. You know? Well, the funny the funny thing is you got a daughter in college, like she's probably brags up the fact that her dad's an author. But if you're still like playing bass in a band, it probably she'd probably keep that secret. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Come on. I'm, I'm dad. I don't, I don't I don't think I'm her idea of, of what's cool. You know, that's but, true. That's true. All right, so I'll tell you what, Neil. Let's put a song, and then we'll talk about the SST book. And uh, because I, I, you know, you've just read it. I really don't know much about it, but it's definitely on my summer reading list. So, what song shall we slide in? Uh, do you want to do the Blind Idiot God one? Should we do that one? Yeah, Blind Idiot God. Okay, tell us a bit about Blind Idiot God, because again, I don't think many of our people know what know what this. Yeah, I've is. never heard of that one either. Okay, so. Um you know, Greg Ginn and the guys at SST got into instrumental music in a big way. And uh, they met up with these cats, you know, who were in Blind Idiot God and became really big in the whole New York avant-garde scene. Ah, noisy uh, stuff. They, they, um, so they only, they, they didn't do many, much work with SST. They got pulled in a different direction. But they had the first record, um, I believe it's a self-titled record, uh, all instrumental and just heavy as hell. Just great stuff. 
Hmm. All right, let's listen to that. That's just, this is Blind Idiot God with Subterranean Flight.
right, that was Blind Idiot God, B-I-G, I guess they would go by, right? Um, Subterranean do you, Flight. Do you feel like you've traveled to another realm? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll get into that dimension. in a second, yeah, with the SSD stuff. There was an awful lot of instrumental stuff going on there towards well, I, the end. I'll tell you what, I'm going to ask one question, Neil, about this book, and then I'm going to probably hand it off mostly to you because I know you just finished reading it. But So, obviously, when you did the Bad Religion book and when you did the Keith Morris book, you worked hand in hand with the artist. Did you have access to Greg Ginn when you did the SST book? No, absolutely not. So it was sort of like a, I don't want to say hostile, but it was a much different working environment than what you're used to. I mean, well, yeah, it wasn't hostile, but there's definitely, uh, you know, some toxicity at the center of the SST story. And I wanted to skirt around that as much as possible because, um, lots and lots of people have been, uh, you know, sucked into that, um, you know, be, because they felt, you know, harmed or betrayed, um, and even antagonized by Greg Ginn and SST, uh, because of their relationship to the label. Hmm. So actually, yeah. So, well, let's, let's riff on that a second. So the other books, obviously, you know, Keith Morris wanted to do a book, uh, Bad Religion wanted to do a book. Like, how did the idea for this SST one come about? Because if it didn't come from Greg Ginn, obviously, like, where did the idea to do even do the book come from? Yeah, it came from a, a publisher at an indie press. Um, things did not work out, um, you know, with that press. Uh, so we took the project to the publishers who put out uh, the same editor that took, put out My Damage and Do What You Want. And, um, and, uh, and, we worked on that was my end up being my pandemic project and um i i had a bit of a, a foot in the door so to speak even though um uh, greg ginn was I, I knew there was virtually no chance that he was going to talk to me i did approach him and he did say no <laughs> but uh, you know i'd sat in keith's apartment for hours listening to him tell me stories about greg ginn and sst so um and especially, you know, all the legal stuff, you know, in fact, sometimes I would go over to his house and before we got into his story, he would like rant at me about the latest thing in this, uh, you know, this, this suit with Greg in that he was in with other members of off. And oh, was they, oh, this was the, this was from the whole flag thing. Is that what this was? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so yeah, a flag, not off. Sorry about that. Um, so, so I felt like I, I, I had a good sense that what I was getting into, like you said, like a hostile situation. And, uh, but you know, so I, I asked Keith, I'm like, Keith, I know, I know what you've said. I know how you feel about Greg because there are many off the record things that you've said to me about him. But, um, what do you think about this story about the label? Um, and he's like, you should absolutely do it. There's just so much, amazing music that uh needs to be celebrated and should not be forgotten so um so i had keith's blessing and i and i would not have pursued the project without it yeah. so, and that's not that's not lip service i absolutely if he said fuck that guy i would have been like yeah fuck that guy you I, know and that been the end of that so if if for the keith morris book you mostly talk to keith for the bad religion book you mostly talk to maybe eight or ten guys what is the scope of the SST book? I assume you interviewed hundreds of people. Not hundreds, but uh, but close to a hundred, dozens and dozens and dozens of people, and um, 
And but I wanted to talk to not just musicians. But like the thing about SST is that it really had a huge cultural impact. So I didn't want to just talk to musicians. I wanted to talk to producers and videographers and mm. photographers and people at other labels and other journalists. And I wanted to read all the stuff that had already been written. Uh, Michael Azarad had, you know, told the story of. Um, of indie rock in his book, Our Band Could Be Your Life. And, you know, SST is kind of like a lurking presence in that because so many of the bands that he discusses are on SST. So it's kind of there in the background. And Joe Carducci had written, uh, did the same thing in his tribute to Naomi Peterson and Enter Naomi. He talks a lot about SST. You know, Naomi Peterson was a the house photographer at SST. And um, so he, so, and Joe, of course, worked there. Uh, and was uh, worked his way up to being one of the owners. So um, those two books, and then Stevie Chick's Black Fly book, all touch on you know SST. So um, so I, I was, and even though I knew that I would not have access to um, Craig Yin, I knew other people you know had done it. And also, um, you know, being a zinester, I knew that there were dozens and dozens of zines. And guys, you know, like me, who had sat in the van with Black Flag, you know, in 1980 and 81 and 82 and 83 and 84, uh, before before things got paranoid. And when Greg Ginn would just tell anyone what his plans were and tell people exactly what he thought. Mm-hmm. So all that was on the record. I just had to go find it and talk to the right people. And... Um, and so it was, that it was. It ended up being a lot. I spent the pandemic listening to old records and reading zines and talking to punk rockers, and it, it was a lot of fun. No, but knowing worse. knowing how litigious and how angry and uh, the man that holds grudges, Greg Ginn appears to be. Were you ever concerned? Like, did you lawyer up beforehand, or to make, to make sure that there was nothing in there that he could sue you for? Well, I mean, I think this was. You know, I mean. So the, the book is called Corporate Rock Sucks, right? It's being put out by a, a major publisher, which is seemingly a contradiction in terms. <laughs> you, know, you know, Hachette is one of the, the big five, as they're referred to, or big four now in, in publishing. But that also means that they have all kinds of resources. And the, each time I've done a book with uh, um, these guys, I, there's a legal review. And the legal review for my damage was extensive because mm. of all, all all the drugs, for example. Yeah. And the legal review for uh, bad religion was less so, but but still, all those members had had their days, and many of them are clean and sober. There was still a lot. So I learned a lot from doing that, and I had a good sense of what you could say and what you couldn't say, um, and how you say things so that things aren't legally actionable, and so you're not putting compromising the publisher and and that's where having you know a big five publisher put out your book is a real asset because it would give someone um you know if someone's just going to drop a knee-jerk lawsuit they're going to have to you know against you know um a basement press well that might be enough to scare that press right but if you do it against a big public a big publishing company that has a legal team and is ready to go um that might give them pause so um it would be like suing atlantic records or something like that you know i mean you can do it but it's going to be expensive so we i I mean 
we went in and made sure that we weren't saying things that were, you know, get, a, get us in trouble. And, um, and, and, you know, so far so good, knock on wood. Now, when did it come uh, out? Was it, it's been a couple of years or is it, is it newer than that? The corporate rock star? Yeah. It came out in April. Oh, it did? Oh, it's so just, they, oh, it's a brand new. I'm sorry. Yeah, I thought it had been out for a bit longer than that. Because did I, did I hear you maybe talk about it on another podcast maybe about six or seven months ago? Do I remember? Was that, was that you? Maybe, but I think I think we're in pandemic for time, my friend. Where where time is no so shit. <laughs> yeah, got that right. We lost two years there for no reason. Tom, you'll love this. Being a big, being a big big screeching weasel fan, you'll love this quote that I found towards the back of the book. Um, ben Weasel takes a good shot at SST and uh, several of its bands um, in a Maximum Rock and Roll uh, article. And, yeah, he used to uh, do a column. Yeah. yeah, for the crime of turning its back on punk rock. And he says, yeah, it's the big thing now for halfway decent bands to regress back to the shittiest music ever created by man and call it progression. SST. Was <laughs> when the fuck was the last time this grandpa-ass label put out a good record? <laughs> I fucking love that. that. That's awesome. Yeah, you gotta be careful, Ben, because now you're the old guy. Uh, but it's, it's funny because later on in a little bit of trivia, Neil, uh, when Black like put the touring band back together uh they stole dave klein who was playing bass for screeching weasel they actually stole screeching weasel's bass player so i guess greg ginn got a small measure of revenge huh oh that's funny i did not know that um yeah yeah so sonic youth uh, reprinted that on their uh, master dick ep it was on the sleeve they reprinted that uh rant hmm. in maximum rock and roll and i think it's really interesting because um i think in one way um ben is absolutely right because there are a lot of weird records that sst started putting out that go back to like that 70s style of rock say like dc3 would be a great example that does kadena 3 um um but the the bands that he's you know oh tom trockley's dog definitely a 70s influence thing You know, some jazz, improvisational stuff, some stuff that was like, you know, that many people considered maybe not up to the par for SST, some some jam bands and things like that. But Ben is taking a shot at Sonic Youth, uh, Das Domin, uh, bands that are like, you know, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty contemporary. I mean, yeah, they they're taking a step back, but like very loud very aggressive and um and and also like maybe they had like uh you know were a little bit ahead of the curve because look where alternative rock went in the 90s you know you know and look what came out of the southwest i mean sorry the northwest yeah i mean i thought i thought it was funny just talking about that going around in circles a little bit because that was towards the end of the book that i pulled that one from but um at the beginning of the book in the like the first chapter i think there's a early quote from early well even before it was black flag right what was a band called panic right it was before it was black yeah. flag yeah um yep. when uh greg says i was rebelling against these people who try to establish their manhood by composing prog rock opuses my goal was to create a concise listening experience you know, by the end of Black Flag, he was doing just the opposite. So I found that a pretty interesting yeah. quote. Why was that? Was it the drugs? Yeah. Was it, I think, I think was drugs it had a lot hippie, to do with it, right? The hippie pothead yeah. kind of thing? 
I mean, I don't know. that quote that quote is pretty much on the nose for the type of things that the people in LA were doing. But one of the reasons why I was like kind of glad that I was not able to talk to um, break in is because I didn't want like a lot of like revisionist history. You know, I didn't want you know a bunch of quotes from 2020 from Greg Ginn, the litigious person. Um, I wanted stuff from Greg Ginn in 1980 and 1982 and 1983, and, and I found it in the zines. That interview mm-hmm. came, I think, a little bit later in the 90s. So, um, well, so, so, he, so, so, so he, has, he has no self-realization at all? He couldn't see that he was doing just the opposite of that? I, thought, I find that really interesting. I, I don't want to say that. I mean, I, that's, I think that's a generalization. I mean, I think that you can't look at someone's life or their musical career or any career in the arts and, you know, make a blatant statement uh, about their attitude towards it. Um, I think that he was, I do think that we tend to think of him in these monolithic terms, right? You know, in terms of hardcore or in terms of, you know, allegations of drug abuse or as, you know, allegations of being a crook. And, you know, I, I think he was many things, possibly all of those things and more. Well, I, uh, well, and I think what what is interesting too that came out of the book. I didn't know this. That even in the early days, he would wear a Grateful Dead T shirt on stage, and he was clearly a Grateful Dead fan, right? Oh yeah, he's a huge Dead fan, and I and I think he was not just, not only just the music, but also into what they were doing, how they created. Uh, Grateful Dead created their own scene that was a part of rock and roll, but also apart from it. Um, you know, the way they traveled around, booked their own shows, had their own PA system. Um, it was kind of its own ecosystem. And, and, you know, he was very into that. He said on at least one occasion that it was his dream would be to open up for Grateful Dead. <laughs> Do you imagine it's, that? That would be interesting. The Deadheads would have to be, be out of their slumber for a minute. Yeah, but who would be singing for uh, Black Flag at that point? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, but, but it, it, it but think about a, think about it. It wouldn't be. It would be like, um, um, the, you know, it would be like instrumental Black Flag. It yeah. wouldn't be, um, you know, he's not gonna go, he's not gonna open for Great Dead and play Nervous Breakdown. You know, <laughs> that would be pretty cool though. Go on, Tom. You were gonna ask him. Well, as I see, he's he's he is such an interesting figure because, you know, five years ago, whatever he put maybe 10 years ago now, I don't know, he put Black Flag back together, he had resisted doing that for the longest time, and he was a guy who would jump in a van with a band that nobody knew and play small clubs for small crowds. It seems like, in some senses, he's easily able to turn off his ego and get back to being a you know struggling musician. I mean, even when I saw Black Flag a few years ago, he looked almost homeless. You know what I mean? It's just like, you know, his t-shirt was worn out and he was out there watching the opening bands play it's such a weird uh a weird paradox for a guy who literally i don't know exactly what his financial situation is but the assets of sst records in the right hands are worth millions of dollars i mean i think just who's to do black flag and the early descendants stuff are worth millions of dollars the catalog i suspect i think you're right is he a wealthy guy who just tries, to, who just looks like a bum, or is he? I, I don't understand why these records aren't being 
you know, you look at a label like Trust Records. I don't know if you know Trust Records. They're the new label that's been doing the seven second stuff and is working yeah. on the the by uh, the BYO catalog because BYO is pretty much done at this point. So they're put. I mean, if in the right hands, those records would be so amazing. They could, they could. Those are a. They could make money with those records. Well, I mean, no actually, question. About yeah, it. I'm actually, actually going to touch on that in a minute because that's really interesting. But I don't know. Because I don't, I don't have. Unfortunately, like I said, I haven't read the book, so I don't, yeah. I don't know what you're, what you're saying about it. But well, I, I'm curious what Jim's thoughts are on that. Well, one thing about like you say, like, well, he looks like this bum, and and yet he has all these assets, and I think like. It's one thing I've learned from these experiences of working with, with musicians is not to extrapolate how a person, how a musician is as a person based on one interaction at a performance. Because, sure. especially in punk, when you have like extreme music, extreme energy, and you meet someone like during that or right after that, and they're not going to be the their normal self. They're either going to be completely out of their minds completely exhausted or just whatever so like to say oh he looked like a bum but he has a lot he has all these assets like well that was that one time i mean um but he was traveling in a van you know what i mean he travels like a hungry musician, musician right That's so there is saying, a weird yeah. a weird paradox there where he's willing to go on the road and before he put black flag together he would play in these weird bands who would maybe play for 50 or 100 you know just oddball people that just wanted to see the great greg ginn play guitar so it's it's just a weird I, I i don't know what to make of him and i'm not trying to generalize it one way or the other i'm just you know just my observations and you're right that doesn't mean you know there's nothing definitive about what i saw i just was fascinated well, by it, you know well, well i mean he he is a subject of enduring fascination because and i think mark lanigan said it perfectly when he said that greg ginn is a total enigma yeah, I mean, what comes out from the book, it's it, it's fascinating how he, um, at the beginning, he might be great friends with people, and but he just, over time, it seems like he seems to get alienated, and then it turns to anger, and like, like the way he got rid of Kira from the band, or the way, you know, he basically every Black Flag member, right, they just got alienated and then kicked out, and then... You know, bad shit said about them. It was. It, it was. It's a really interesting. That's an interesting paradox, I think. So you you talked to a lot of people about this. I mean, I'm sure some of them had good things to say. Some of them had bad things to say. I'm sure there's defenders, right? I'm sure Greg Ginn has plenty of defenders. He certainly doesn't need us, I assume. Yeah, I mean, both. There are people who are like you know who are devastated by what they feel as theft and the betrayal of someone that they considered a friend. There are people who are hurt by the continuing indifference and like refusal to acknowledge requests to have a phone call or a conversation. Um, and then there are people who who completely understand uh, where he's coming from and where he's at, or understand their own situation. Like, look, we never sold many records. We were never going to sell any records, but we were able to make records because of Greg Ginn. So there's uh, an attitude of gratitude. And, uh, and and it's all across the spectrum. And, and also, like, after I wrote the book, I've talked to people have approached me about some of their individual experiences with Greg Ginn um, this century, in the last 20 years. And they're all over the book, from being sued to negotiating to get rights back. So I, I think it really is, like, a case-by-case thing with uh when it comes to sst 
that you really can't make generalizations about how he is or who he is because every situation is a little bit different. Hmm. Did you did you talk to to uh, to Ray Pettibone uh, f- about it, or did you? But was that just all from from stuff that that you'd read in other sources? No, I talked to Ray, but uh, I talked to him before um, for the Keith Morris book. Okay, and I didn't really need to talk to Ray for the Keith Morris book because Keith's book is all in his voice. I was just trying to get you know his opinion on some things in those early days in Hermosa Beach, but also. Because I wanted to, t- I wanted to talk to him, right? Sure. I mean, it's him and Pettibone. I wanted, I'd love to, hear, you know, yeah. spend minutes with him, you know, and it ended up being a couple of hours that uh, I'll, I'll absolutely never forget. So, um, so that's where that came from, and um, and I think the the damage in the in the between the brothers is probably the most intense because they they don't talk, right? They haven't talked for like twenty mm. years or something, right? I think even longer than that. Yeah. So, so for those that don't know, Ray Ray Pettibone, uh, the artist, uh, Greg Ginn is his brother, and they fell out. You know, they were using all his artwork, obviously, at the beginning, but then they fell out, and yeah, they haven't talked in like twenty, twenty-five years, whatever. Such such a distinctive artwork, too. I mean, once again, even if you don't know the name, you know the artwork. Yeah. Outside You've of Punk, artwork, probably you... probably the most famous punk artist yeah, in the last I mean, forty years, it, right? I mean, everybody everybody knows the cover of like the Police Story single, or you know, I mean, there's just those those images, just certain images that are, yep, just so uh, powerful. The Family Man image, or but yeah, the, good stuff. All right, yeah. you know, listen, let's let's play another let's let's play another song because we just we've been in there a long time and we could certainly go back to it. I'm, I'm gonna let you. I, I keep I keep having questions. That no, I it's all good. No, it's it, it's all good. Okay. Um, Jim, uh, the next band we're gonna we're gonna play. Uh, Saint Vitus. They come up a lot in the book, but I've never heard them. Do you want to? Do you want to give a brief introduction to who Saint Vitus oh, was? I know Saint Vitus. Yeah, Saint Saint Vitus is one of the godfathers of doom metal. Like one of the, you know, slowed things down. And in it, you know, when SST signed them, is like at the peak of the Sunset Strip metal phase when all these guys were wearing spandex and big hair and. St. Vitus was more in the Black Sabbath mold, more leather and denim, you know, and uh, just a slower, uh, thunderous vibe. And um, this song, The Psychopath, is like, is really uh, s- slow. And um, I-, I love it. Okay, cool. Let's listen to that. This is St. Vitus with uh, The Psychopath. <laughs> Thank you. 
right? That was Saint Vitus with the psychopath. Now, what with so okay? So they were from L.A. then. Yeah, they were from uh, from the South Bay. Okay. Um, I, the story. Uh, uh, Bill Stevenson told me a story about how uh, they came back from tour and they'd been kicked out of their uh, practice space, so they uh, they rented a space, and in the studio next to theirs, Saint Vitus was rehearsing, and they were like whoa check this out these guys are super heavy and they immediately became friends hmm. that's cool I, the, the the singer of that band the original singer i don't think he's involved with the band anymore it was a guy named wino and he's done a bunch of stuff matter of fact one of his bands is playing locally next month and i can't remember which one is his other most second most famous band i can't think of it off the top of my head is it the obsessed it's the obsessed yeah i saw spirit caravan which is another one of his bands a few years ago but, you know, I kind of get into that stuff once in a while. You know, it's fun. It's good yeah, stuff. Yeah, Why yeah. is not the original singer. He was the second singer. Oh, was he the second singer? Okay. But, yeah, it's a pretty known in Doom Circles, which is... Yeah, that's not I me, I'm know, afraid. Kind yeah. of small circles, I think. Yeah, that's not me. Uh, well, listen, Doom was an accident, too, man. I'm, I'm currently reading the Black Sabbath, uh, the Jim Wall... Jim Wall? What's the Wall? Mick Wall? Black Sabbath book, an English guy. And that was... They just kind of fell onto doom too so some of this music's just sort of you know like the ramones almost like the black south or sort of like the ramones of of metal you know these kind of accidentally fell onto something yeah. oh yeah so much free music starts with black sabbath it really does it really does and they, i mean obviously they kind of lost the they kind of lost the plot too boy they they kind of had a you could almost compare them to black flag in a lot of ways because tony iomi was like the iconoclast that just kept the whole thing going and again and it wasn't even you know he shouldn't have but he didn't know any better he was so focused on on what he was doing but anyway i'm sorry no that's fine um do you want to do you want to uh, talk a little bit about because one of the parts of the book that fascinated me was that whole negative land U two Casey Kasem thing. Do you want to just describe that a bit for the for the listeners as to what that whole nonsense was about? Because that was a fascinating story. Well, it's the I think uh, the whole negative land fiasco and the reason why I went into it in such great detail is that for two reasons. And first, it's the moment when um, SST jumped the shark. Uh, it's the moment when SST um, sorry, sued its own one of its own bands, and you know this band that had you know been operating under the slogan "Corporate Rock Still Sucks" was now acting like the kind of outfit that they um, purported to despise. So they they become the enemy, so to speak, and um, and the other reason why I, I drilled into it, aside from it being a fascinating story, is that Negative Land um, produced this book called Fair Use, in which they documented the entire story, including press releases from SST. So it was a way to tell a story about how SST beha- behaves in a lawsuit, um, which... Um, is very difficult to do because lots of times when SST gets into a lawsuit, it ends up settling and part of the out of court and part of the terms of settling is you do not discuss what happened. And for that reason, there were some people that I was really hoping to talk to for this book were, were not able because they could not go on record in a book about SST without risking uh, a, you know violating the terms of their settlement. Uh. Other people. Other musicians had ongoing legal matters and did not want to disrupt those by going on record in a book. 
So what is a negative land story? Is like negative land. Um, they were like kind of like when an SST was at its peak, they put out this record uh, called uh, Escape from Noise. And it's just this brilliant um, mishmash of, of, collage, of sound collage and ex- experiments with noise and think, cutting things in and, uh, um, you know, found audio and things taped from radio. And it was brilliantly put together in a pre-digital era when you had to, like, literally cut tape mm-hmm. and tape it back together. And Escape from Noise, I probably should have uh, uh, selected a cut from there. In fact, maybe we should, since the last one I gave you was so long. That's good, yeah. Uh, you know, or we uh, do both, uh, whatever. Yeah, Christianity is Stupid became kind of an unexpected hit. And um, the Escape from Noise sold something like 35,000 copies, you know, in mm. the first year or two after it came out. And those were numbers that, like, you know, Sonic Youth and Husker Du were hitting. So, like, it was it was a pretty big hit for SST. And so, um, Negative Land, you know, then kept putting out more records. And in the early 90s, they gave um, SST a 7-inch. Um, and what it was was a, a, a recording of Casey Kasem on a hot mic running down U2... <laughs> And in the background, there's, you know, uh, slices from still haven't found what I'm looking for. And the way everything about it was just legal trouble. I mean, from Casey Kasem to having U2 actually on the record to having like U2 in big letters on the artwork. <laughs> I mean, it was it was just inviting a lawsuit from <laughs> Island Record. And they got one. Everybody sued, you know, Island Records, uh, U2, U2, um, Casey Kasem, like it was just like an avalanche of trouble, right? And so, um, even though, uh, as I tell the whole full story in the book, I'll keep it short now, but even though SST was advised against putting it out, they put it out and they, they got, um, they, SST and uh, Negative Land could not come to an agreement about who would pay what and who was liable for what for what and negative land was actually very suspicious of sst and so the two had a falling out that resulted in sst suing negative land and negative land counter suing sst all of which was fairly unprecedented um but this is in the, the early 90s and there had been rumors about sst not paying its artists for years and so all these journalists that had heard stories from bands like Sonic Youth and the Meat Puppets and on and so on um, could now look into SST and cover the story about um, you know you know what's going on here. And so even though Negative Land were like these merry pranksters uh, of music who would um, would would just would lie to you if it was going to make an interesting record. Um, ended up um, getting the media on their side and telling this story. And that hmm. must that must have drove Greg Greg Ginn crazy, I would assume. Yeah. Now, did you talk to the I, Negative I think, Land guys? Well, I didn't have to uh, because I, I had made some. I reached out to some folks, but um, it's all in the book. And gotcha. I talked to other artists, um, you know, from that period, and I also talked to the general manager 
um, at SST who, um, who basically quit because of this whole scandal. He could see what was coming, and he was like, "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stick around and take the fall for this." I told them not to sign this band, not to put this record out, and they did. I'm out of here. So, um, and which guy was that? That was Daniel Spector. Spector, okay. So, yeah. what is the current status of the label? And when, when was the last time they put something out? And as far as I know, you could still—I mean, they still run the SST Superstore. Or, I mean, is it still a viable yep. label at this point? It's still a viable label. You can go to the SST Superstore and order something. In fact, that's what record stores do. Um, they can order things in bulk and everything, but. Uh, but I talked to people I talked to at record stores have told me that like it's been getting harder and harder to get stuff out of SST. They'll order a quantity of records and they won't be available. Um, and then then SST will just cancel the order for without any kind of explanation. Hmm. So um, it, it's very unusual. And as you as you stated earlier, there's like there, there's a gold mine of uh, that they're sitting on with you know missed opportunities in terms of reissues and remasters and anniversary editions of all the legacy records. They don't uh, even have to do it themselves. They can license it all out if they wanted. You know, what I mean, even in the licensing, it would be just crazy amount of money. Yeah, and they could, and they, I mean, they could, they could license it only in Australia or only in Europe or only in the UK. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they could do whatever they wanted. You know. So, so a lot of artists. You're talking about how. Go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead. A lot of artists, or I should say, some artists, have gotten the rights to the music back. So the SST catalog is is no longer, you know, completely there. So like, Me Puppets have gotten their music back. Sonic Youth has gotten their music back. Sonic Youth, Soundgarden got its album back, and then other people have uh, negoti- negotiated it back. So. Um, and then there were other people who had, who when they signed with SST, like some of the uh, some of the artists who had had experience, who were not punk rockers, but people who were part of like the avant-garde scene, were like, "Oh, this contract is bullshit. We're not signing it. Change this, this, and this." And SST said, "Okay," and uh, and so they have the rights to their music um, because they always did. You said Greg Ginn's an enigma. So you have do you have any insight into what the did did was anybody shine a light on why he's handling it the way he's handling it? Did you did you feel like anybody had any insight on there? Or is it just everybody's just in the dark about what he's doing? Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, I hear lots of things, but I I don't know, uh, you know, and I'm sure most of the stuff that I've heard is true, but it's it's also. Um, you know, I don't know how much of it is as a reflection of, of the person today. Um, gotcha. I, I think that person deserves, you know, the the benefit of the doubt. We don't know what his intentions are. He he may it's doubtful, but he may be intending to turn the music back over to um, all the artists, you know, at some stage, sure. or he may sign it all away to, um, you know, the Orchard or you know to some other. Um, one publisher. one last one last big one last big payday and retire. 
that's, I, mean, that would, that, I mean, he's he's almost retirement age. That's certainly what I would be thinking if I was him, but I, I, I don't know. Well, like well, I said, he's, he's an enigma. One of the things that's really interesting in the book in the last few pages is, um, is that some of the things that have never been reissued or whatever – because it and it's not them being awkward or whatever, right, Jim? It's the fact that those original tapes, those original recordings, might just be gone from bad uh, storage to all the moving around that was done to people just not handling the stuff well, right? Possibly, possibly. I, I was, I you know, I don't know, so I don't want to uh, presume that I don't. Although I have heard from people since the book came out that, like, you know, the the location of some of the tapes, which. It's just a rumor, so I'm not going to repeat it. But um, but again, it's like for every you know for every kind of um, question you could have about Greg Ginn and his business practices, Greg Ginn and his musical taste, Greg Ginn and his drug use, Greg Ginn and his mental health, there are going to be two, three, four, five different theories. So sure. you know, I, I think it's dangerous to t- you know to cherry pick, you know. I'll take this story about this and this story about that and create a composite of who that person is. No, but that, I, that, I don't, that would explain, don't though, what, why something amazing like that Staines album has never been reissued, right? On, reissued at all. I mean, that would at least make sense if the, well, if the that, tapes simply has, weren't there. That has limited commercial p- potential. But a band like Husker Du, you know, who's kind of an evergreen band who's... Uh, you know, never really fallen from out of favor among the rock critic crowd. Now, granted, most of that stuff had never really gone out of print, but you know that stuff was so clunky, so clunky sounding a lot of it. So a lot of us who bought those albums on CD, man, they do not sound good at all. They deserve uh, to be handled. You know, they deserved a deluxe treatment and to be really properly yeah. released. But yeah, and also it's interesting. I think. Um you know, the other part of it is, you know, the band all has to be on the same page, right? So that's, yes, you know, they're famously uh, um, argumentative and, you know, difficult to, I mean, it's hard enough to get five people to show up at one place at one time, right? So sure. to, to agree, you know, to a legal matter, to make some kind of decision that's going to be expensive and time consuming, you know, um, is something else. So, um, Man, the, but the replacements did it. You'd think <laughs> if the replacements could do it, anybody could do it, right? <laughs> do you want to? I mean, it, it, I think I think it really helps that if you have good management and a label behind you that is helping you do all this stuff, kind of like Sonic Youth did during its Geffen years. Ah, uh, yes. Down Garden when it was with um, they were on A uh, and M or something, right? They were on a, a- big label. Yeah, I can't remember why can't I remember Atlantic or A and M or forget what it was. So um, now the Meat Puppets had a had a major label deal for a minute, but they were kind of a one hit wonder. But uh, what about like Blast? You know, there were so many great like man, there were so many great bands on that label, Neil, that put out a couple of albums. Like the like Blast put out two albums on SST. They were right. great. We have to back up because I know you didn't call the Meat Puppets a one hit wonder. <laughs> well, okay, you're right. Okay, no, I love the Beat Puppets, and I actually like the first two records a lot. But I mean, they had a hit in the '90s. I, I, that you're right. That's not fair because they were ten years after they started. More than ten years. It was about '94 or so. They had a, still, that hit. They had a grunge hit. It's still an amazing band, and uh, you know, a story of endurance, and uh, and also, um, you know, tied up with uh, with Nirvana and Kurt Cobain, which yep. is. I, you know, 
and I that was interesting that you said that Greg had the chance to sign Nirvana, right? And he wasn't interested. Oh yeah. The, um, so Mark Lanigan talked about that in his book. And so I asked him about it and he went into further detail and, uh, he really tried. He tried very hard. Um, but Greg Ginn was not interested, which is kind of one of those what if moments, right? Yeah. It's like the Beatles story. Yeah. People passing on that. Um, do you want to do you want to talk just for a second about how um, talking about the master tapes and stuff? How Black Flag's Live '84 album had to be painstakingly re- remixed? That was a crazy story. Yeah, it was. I mean, you are like uh, the only person who has asked me about that. So um, yeah, I think that's really fascinating. And the reason um, the reason why I went into it with uh, the producer and, and included it in the book because it shows like here's this master tape they had from a performance in 1984 that was being um, uh, tinkered with, you know, kind of, I forget when, um, what era we're, we're talking about. Um, and, um, you know, the difference was not that, you know, not that far, you know, and right. now you consider like, well, what are the, you know, here in 2020, what are the, what's the status of some of those tapes you know, from 1976 and 1978 and 19, you know, 80 and 81, you know? So, um, so yeah. Cause they had to, they, he said, didn't they have to like play it again? It was big speakers and then record it again, record it after they, uh, it, the whole process was yeah, crazy, it, right? Yeah, it was a crazy process. Uh, um, and, but it was really, I mean, they basically advertise it as a reissue, but, essentially it was remixed as well yeah yeah actually i think i saw that live 84 that would have been i th- i saw them in 84 on the my war tour i think in europe in manchester i saw them so that oh, was wow. uh that was interesting uh because all the punks and skinheads were, went there expecting to hear you know a tv party and six pack and stuff and they did some of that but then the last part of the set was all the second side of my war <laughs> and so that didn't go down too well at all <laughs> and what was some of the reaction that you remember uh people kept yelling at henry and throwing things at him uh some guy yelled get your dick out it was a very strange cra- <laughs> it was a, it was a very strange very strange reaction and nick heist opened up too so uh yeah. the, all the punk rockers in manchester were shocked by nick heist i thought that was hysterical yeah yeah, that was that was the intention. Mm-hmm. Mission accomplished. But it was funny seeing all these open-minded punk rockers who were just completely stunned and shocked by Nick Heist. I I love that. But yeah. uh, anyway, I think I think Tom's internet might have might have dropped because it looks like we lost him. Oh. Uh, well, that's that's okay. I think we're I think we're coming close to to, to being done. He was upset. They called him out on his meat puppets take. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. Something like that. Yeah. Um, well, what do you want to uh, do? You want do you want to plug anything? I mean, is there anything else you want to say about the book? The book is fantastic. I mean, the stories we've talked about, everybody. Um, there's a million of them in this book. Uh, the, the story of SST is crazy. Obviously, a lot of detail on the early stuff. Um, the later stuff, they were putting out so many records in like the, it, in the later years, right? It was tough to cover them all, but. Yeah, and, and so I've been, uh, you know, tr- you know, all over California, up to Vancouver, out to New York. Uh, hopefully, I get to a few other places. Um, if anyone listening to this wants me to come out to their town and can put together an event, hit me up. 
on my website. But um, I have talked to a lot of people who were part of the SST story and they've got like things that they want to add, you know, some uh, corrections to make in some instances. And so, um, so now I'm sitting down with the manuscript again and, and turning in, you know, making sure all those things are, uh, are 1000% accurate, making my corrections, making my notes. I don't know how expanded the paperback edition will be, but it will, uh, it will be a little different. Okay. Um, and then, um, and I'm also working on revisions to uh, another novel, which is uh, punk adjacent. It's about a dysfunctional vigilante group called Make It Stop, <laughs> and uh, I don't want to. I don't want to say, oh yeah, it's a punk rock novel because that's not entirely true. But uh, there, there are some punk rock bands in it. There, there is a. Uh, there's some skinheads that get stabbed. I mean, there, it's it's a little bit. There's a little bit there. So. Um, so if you if you like these uh, the work I've done so far and haven't read my fiction, then you might like this. It's called Make a Stop, and it's coming out from Rare Bird Books, February of 2023. Okay, and you mentioned you mentioned your website. What is that? It's uh, jimrulin.net. But I'm pretty easy to find on Instagram and Twitter and things like that. No, it's it's true, obviously, right, uh, Neil? Because some random stranger reached out and said, "Hey, we come on our silly punk podcast," and we were able to get a hold of him. So, oh, actually, one thing I did want to ask you: Have you heard any feedback from Greg? As as, do you know if he's read the book and what he thought of it, or have you not? Have you not heard anything like that? Um, let's see. no, I'm not in the way that like you. I'm, in, you know, no, I have not heard anything. But I did hear from someone who met with uh, one of SST's lawyer, and uh, they were aware of the book, and they had a copy of the book, and they were um, going to go through it. Hmm. But I don't know if um, you know. That's like a rumor of a rumor, right? And did you talk to Henry at all? Um, Henry declined, and uh, I suspect that was for legal reasons. There are other people who. Oh, uh, right. Yeah, gotcha. There was, um, you know, there were other people who were, um, you know, told me they wished they could and hope I would understand, but they could not because of the legal matters. And and then also there were some people who just uh, didn't get back to me um, in time or uh, because of the pandemic. So. Um, you know, a lot of people were going through a lot of shit, my family included. So, um, yeah, you know, the, I, you know, I just went with the people who were available and told the stories. Hmm. So, okay. so I'm sorry, I, I, my internet crapped out as usual. Yeah, I'm happy to um, see. Yeah, you we back. yeah talked about you, Tom. That's all. <laughs> well, I said just keep going, keep going, don't stop. He's on a roll. Don't stop him. Don't <laughs> stop him. So, um, I did. So you talked to you did talk a little about your new project. You talk about a non or a fictional book coming out. Did you do you have another musical project in the works? Forgive me if I'm uh, forgive me if I if you already covered this, but no. Um, yeah, we have a book with that I'm writing with Evan Dando of the Lemonheads. Oh, Lemonheads. Okay. And um, which, uh, yes, is a punk rock project uh, in part. Be a, remember those first three records from Tang. Uh, I don't know if you guys. I was going to say that'd be that'd be another great one to talk about because Tang is if it's if they're not they're about as shadowy as SST, other than the fact that they're just not as big. You know, they, <laughs> they don't have the catalog, but it's there's definitely some skeletons in the closet over there too. 
great label though i love their stuff yeah i I suspect you're right and um i mean we've had a lot of personal anecdotes some of which have been during the recording of the pod a lot of them of which have been after we stopped yeah from different bands yeah from different (laughs) bands that recorded for for them yeah that's when you get the good stuff a lot of times it's like ah hey we stopped recording now tell me the truth about this but yeah uh, that's you want to have two recorders, right? So you can turn one off while the uh, other one keeps. Yeah, playing. we wouldn't. We we yeah we we don't want that. We don't do that. But it, it is a shame because sometimes we do get some amazing stuff before and after we push record that you're like, oh man, I wish we could share that, or I wish we would have captured that, you know. But that's all right. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, that's the way it goes. Pretty much. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you want to? Uh that you want to that you want to talk about we'll or probably, that you want to we'll push? Probably let you go have your probably let you have your dinner. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, no. I'm just uh, just keeping busy. Uh, thanks for for reading the book and supporting it and uh, spreading the news about it. Um, you know, very very proud of proud of it and grateful to all the people who shared their story with me. Now, do you have a do you have a favorite band or favorite bands on SST? Were were some of your favorite bands of all time on there that you that you were able to talk to? Or, um, well, I mean, it's you know, I'm someone that uh, my favorite bands are like you know a band that I heard of 15 minutes ago and I can't stop listening to it, Not- and uh, um, which is kind of how I've always been. I get obsessive about something, okay, and I'll just look on, but. Uh, the band that I've listened to the most, like since since I finished the book, when like SST was like a giant homework assignment, right? You yeah. know, which is you know listening to Beat Puppets and Husker Du and Sonic Youth is is pretty good homework. And Sonic Youth is a band that I absolutely loved in college, and and of course with the work I did with Keith, um, I I love uh, you know all the Black Flag stuff, especially the early stuff. Um, I'm a. I wasn't a fan of the Descendants when I was a teenager or in my twenties, but I'm a huge fan now. Mm. And um, but honestly, the band that I listened to the most since my homework was done is Saint Vitus. Oh, interesting. Mm. Okay. I can't get enough of uh, of of the Doom. Mm. Interesting stuff. Well. So I think we're going to play out with uh, you've got a you've got a long opus to, to play us out with um, from the did band. Did we play the Did we play the Negative Land one? We should well, we, we should throw some Negative Land in there too at some point. Okay, I'm not sure what well what, what Negative Land should we should we throw in there? You think? Oh, Christianity is stupid. We talked about that. You can throw it in there. Okay. So let's listen to that real quick, and then we will come back and say goodbye, and then we will we will play out with the opus. Okay, so this is Negative Land with what? Christianity is stupid? Yep. Okay. Christianity is stupid. Christianity is stupid. 
as usual and avoid panic buying all right that was negative land with christianity is stupid and uh dude thank you for coming on thank you so much for answering my email and uh and for agreeing to do this we really appreciate it yeah it was very uh very interesting to uh, a i was fascinated with how how it works with writing these biographies but also you know obviously no one can see inside of Greg Ginn's mind, but it is such a fascinating, you know, the SST stuff, it's so fascinating, you know, because it just is yeah. such a cool catalog. And it was a label that even into the 90s still had, you know, a, a level of credibility that no fake indie or, you know, major subsidiary could have. So it was, it's, 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 it's fascinating stuff, man. And I think a lot of people are fascinated by it. So, yeah, it's, it, he, he's, um, He's definitely, I think that's a great word, fascinating, in that um, you can't really uh, put your finger on, on what motivates someone like that. And I think that was as true in 1978 as it is today. I mean, 
we're not talking about like a you know uh, a teenager and a guitar who was pissed off at the world but you know someone with an electronics business and a degree from ucla when black flag started so it's just a very different person and um a, a genius i think i think so too i mean those some of those riffs the riffs are undeniable undeniable so we're gonna play out with oxbow do you want to tell us a little bit about oxbow um so people know uh, what they're listening to yeah so oxbow uh is a band comprised of several of it's an experimental avant-garde band based out of san francisco comprised of several members of the hardcore band whipping boy mm-hmm. uh founded by eugene robinson in stanford and eugene is a fascinating character he's got a great uh substack uh, he's got a great um he's written some books and he, he was he's just someone who like he knows everyone he's made a lot of stuff happen and he was always friends with uh chuck dukowski and uh lydia lunch and henry rollins and i mean many 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 people and so um with oxbow they were making this really incredible music that they only that was only coming out in europe because nobody in the united states knew what to do with it um, even though Serenade in Red was produced by Steve Albini, they could not find uh, a record label in the United States to put it out. And so SST was like, we'll put it out. And I think a lot, a lot of that has to do with the friendship between Eugene Robinson and Chuck Dukowski um, dating all the way back you know, to, to the 80s. So in my mind, it's one of the last great records that SST released. Okay, and what year was this? Um, you know, off the top of my head, I don't recall. Okay, so it was probably mid nineties or something, there, right? Or I think it that? was. I think it was later than that. Okay, all right. What? When was? Okay, I'm sorry. So they put out the Black Flag album in like 2014. The reunion album is that the last thing the labels put out? I think there are a couple other Greg Ginn uh, projects after that. So it's pretty um, much just his stuff at this point. After Greg Ginn moved to from Long Beach to Taylor, Texas, he had a band called uh, um, um, I forget the, uh, I forget the name of it, um, but Taylor is in it. Taylor, Texas is in the name, and he did a couple albums, and I think those were among the last. Greg along- Ginn, Greg Ginn, and the Taylor, Texas Corrugators. There you go. Wow. Along with a couple of uh, guitar techno experiments uh, that he that he was really into. The name of that band is about as good as the cover art on the last Black Flag album, you know? Yeah, and in, fa- and in fact, we're going to see him. Black Flag is touring in October, as a matter yeah, of fact. Yeah, we're actually, so. we're actually going to go see him, I think, because the Dickies are rat- yep. winding up their career, and the Dickies, and who else is playing? It's a TSOL. Killer, TSOL. TSOL, yeah. Yep. yeah. Oh, wow. So we'll see him So there. we're going yeah. to go see Mike Vallely. Yep. Yeah. I just saw TSOL and um, uh, the Dickies uh, a couple weeks ago. They're insane. So how are the Dickies still 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 good? Still that very entertaining? I mean, if if you like puppets, I suppose. You know. <laughs> wow. Yeah, not, not so no Saint Vitus, I guess, penis, right? <laughs> penis puppets. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I I think the musicianship is is impeccable. Um, and, and the Dickies were one of the first Southern California bands that I got into. Um, <laughs> in that when I got to, when I was in the Navy, this guy made a tape for me and it had uh, 
um, Social Distortion, Bad Religion, and the Dickies on it. So all three of those bands are, are pretty. Uh, oh, what a weird! Can't go wrong with that though. <laughs> yeah, you should uh, do the you should do the Mike Ness biography and tell him to hurry up yes. and finish another record. Oh. Well, okay. Well, we, we we can talk about that off off the air because actually, right, I, we, I did just read an interview with him. So. Go because I think yep. we could probably pepper him with questions forever. Yeah, we could. We yeah. But thank thanks so much for coming on, man. Giving us a little insight into this stuff. It's fast, fast. Like I said, the Greg Ginn stuff is fascinating, and uh, I've I've only read the Keith Morris biography, but I'm going to get the other two now. Yeah. So. Buy the book, everybody. It's look excellent. Forward, look forward to reading. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks it. so much. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. So we're gonna play it with Oxbow. And uh, yeah, the song is called Three O'Clock. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yep. Uh, Keep a little mark in your heart. Stay free. We'll smell you later. Smell you later, everybody. Bye-bye.
That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. <laughs>